I hope you all are doing well. We had a, a great week. Clay County Schools were on spring break last week. So uh, Allie and, and myself and um, uh, some friends of ours, uh, we went over to, uh, to Port St. Joe, uh, kind of over in the, um, the panhandle, kind of right where the white sandy beaches begin. Uh, and we, uh, we went and sat on a beach all week. It was, uh, it was, it was glorious, right? Um, uh, sunsets like you wouldn't believe. Uh, over there, you're allowed to have uh, a fire on the beach. And so we picked a beach trip because it's spring. Spring has sprung. It's been 90 degrees. Yeah, it was 65 degrees. <laughs> we had fires on the beach. Like, what is going on here? It's like, it's like winter keeps leaving and then walking back in and saying, and another thing. And I'm like, man, y'all killing me. So anyway, so we, we, we suited up, put our sweats on, and went out and just enjoyed, the, enjoyed as much beach as we possibly could. So I know some of y'all are uh, finishing up spring break. Some of y'all are starting spring break. And so I hope that, that however, uh, whenever it falls in your calendar, uh, that, uh, that you're able to rest, to recharge a little bit. And uh, we're going to focus on God's Word today. Acts chapter 2 this morning. Uh, so we're going to, as you're turning there, we're going to parachute a little bit into the middle of a, of a story, which I generally don't like to do um, because I feel like you leave a lot of the good kind of out and you just sort of parachute right in the middle of a story. It's like jumping into the middle of a movie. Uh, but so we're going to kind of recap a little bit what's happened uh, in the in the Gospels to get to this point. So we're going to do a quick recap of Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and first or in Acts chapter one. Okay, uh, so. Um, so basically, Jesus was born of a virgin. He lived a perfect life. He died a death that was meant for you and for me, but he didn't stay dead. On Easter Sunday, gloriously, uh, supernaturally re was resurrected from the dead. Now he holds the keys to death and to hell and the grave, and God is faithful, and he, and he loves us, and, and all of this was meant as a, as a way to redeem us back to, to himself. Jesus was resurrected, lived for 40 days, 40 more days on the earth, uh, ministered and, and sharing um, uh, the truth of, the, of, of the, the substitutionary atonement of Jesus. And then uh, in Acts chapter 1, he was gloriously uh, ascended to heaven. And, uh, and he told the disciples as he was going, he said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my martyrs, all right? You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth, all right? And so then just like that, big flash of light, he is gone, the disciples are still standing there looking up, going, man, what do we do now? There's a couple angels that are standing up in heaven. They look down and go, what are y'all doing? Y'all need to get busy. And so what do the disciples do? They get busy. They, they, they choose a replacement for Judas, uh, and then off they go for 10 days. They lay around, and, 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 and they're not doing what I was doing on the beach and just laying around. They were actually praying together fervently, honestly, openly, praying for God's Spirit to move. And then in Acts chapter 2, it's a day that we know as Pentecost. Uh, Peter gets up and he preaches a super simple sermon. I bet y'all wish I would do that every now and then. All he says is this, repent and believe for the kingdom of God is at hand. And just like Billy Graham, you know what I love about Billy Graham is that when he preaches, he just says, you know what? The Lord loves you. You're a sinner and you need Jesus. Come just as you are. And I mean, stadiums of people would like, they just go, yeah. And then all of the, I was a, I was actually a counselor. Allie and I were counselors for the Billy Graham Crusade here in Jacksonville. And I'm sitting around and like like he just preaches this super, this super simple message. I was 20 years old, a young preacher, thinking it's got to be some deep theological message. He preaches this very simple message: come to Jesus. And people go sure, and they all come down. Everybody's getting saved. I'm going. Am I sure that I'm saved? You know, I feel like I should be coming down, right? And Peter preaches this this super simple sermon. 
which proves that it doesn't have to be this theologically deep sermon. You just preach the gospel of Jesus and offer an invitation and people will come. And 3,000 men were saved that day. Why, do I, why is it important that 3,000 men were saved? Because it said the number that was added to them on that day was 3,000. And we would celebrate. We would celebrate if the number that was added to them on that day was one, wouldn't we? But yet it was 3,000 men that were saved. They didn't even count the women and children. We don't know how many were saved on Pentecost. We just know it was a ton. And the local church was born. We've looked at the sufficiency of Scripture because the sufficiency of Scripture is the foundation with which we build our lives as believers. We've looked at prayer and fasting, and I, and I hope you will join us every Friday from sunup to sundown. We're going to pray and we're going to fast together that the Lord would strike revival. He would bring revival to Fort Caroline Baptist Church. We're praying for our Easter services. We're praying that people, when they hear that simple gospel, and they're going to hear it on Easter Sunday, church, they're going to hear it. They're going to hear 1 Corinthians chapter 15. They are going to hear that because Jesus died and rose again, they too, even though they're dead in their sin, they can rise. We need to be praying for these things. But now that we've set that foundation of the local church, how it was, how it was born, We're going to pray that God would move within the local church for his glory and for our good. So we've looked at the sufficiency of scripture. We've looked at the need for prayer and for fasting, for communion with God. But now we're going to look at what it means for us to have communion with each other. Because I think in a lot of ways we get church right in the Western modern church. I think in a lot of ways we get it wrong. And so I want us to look at that today, maybe even analyze how are we doing it at Fort Caroline? Are we doing it right? Are we doing it the way that God intended? Or are there some places that we could just flat be better? So today's big idea is this, that the local church isn't perfect. Believe me, it isn't perfect. But it is vital in the life of the maturing disciple of Jesus. So we're going to parachute into Acts chapter 2. Um, Peter's sermon is a great idea. But then something else had to happen. Okay, all these people are saved. And just like Matt mentioned, you know, all these new believers turn around and going, all right, now what? And the, the, apostles, the, the apostles at this point are standing around going, <laughs> I don't know. And we see how the Lord, through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, which indwells each believer, how the ministry of the Holy Spirit began to work in the people. And... and what you're not going to see is someone like me standing up on a stage and telling them what to do. They just sort of start to do it because the Holy Spirit, the same Holy Spirit indwells each of us. And it binds our hearts together to do the things that God wants. Um, Charles Spurgeon once said that, that when your will is God's will, you have your will. When, when we're all seeking after the Lord together individually, we will find God together corporately. And so I, I want you to have that mindset as we read this uh, together today. Let's start reading Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 42. It says, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. That, that sentence is very important. That word all is super important. 
because it means that everyone was together. Now, mind you, when you have, when you have, you know, 150 Southern Baptists in a room, you're going to have 151 opinions. Okay, it's just the way we we operate. All right, these people were they were all together. They they were they were unified. They weren't letting the little petty stuff get in the way. They were looking over that stuff to see the, what was actually important. Okay, and I want us to, to have that idea that, that they were all who believed were together and, and had all things in common, not some things, not a few things, not most things. They had all things in common. It says, and they were selling their possessions and their belongings and distributing the proceeds to, and to all. Yeah, yeah, how about that? As any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. Praising God and having favor with, say it, all the people. Yeah, yeah, all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Church, the local church was meant to exist and to consist of several things. One, it should, be, it should consist of absorbing God's word. Look at the beginning of verse, verse 42. It says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Now, mind you, the the local church didn't have what you have, okay? They didn't have iPads like I have. They didn't have iPhones or Androids like you have, okay? They didn't have the leather-bound, olive-leaf, concordance, you know, um, uh, ESV study Bible that's that thick, you know? know, They didn't have all of those things. They, they had, uh, you know, they didn't have the tabs to show you where each book of the Bible was. They didn't even have the Bible at this point. They didn't even collate the 66 books of the canon for years after this. They, 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 at this point, they really didn't even know which of the letters were the ones that were truly inspired. They had the Old Testament. Like the New Testament was just starting to be written. They had the Old Testament, Right? Which, is, which consists of three things. Number one, they had the Pentateuch. All right? They had the, the first five books of the Bible. We know that Moses most likely wrote most of it, except for the part at the end of Deuteronomy where he died. I don't assume he probably couldn't write that part. My guess is that, is that Joshua or Aaron came behind him and wrote it, okay? They had the Nevi'im, which is the, the, the prophetic, the, the prophet uh, books, majors and minors. They had the Ketuvim, which was the history and the poetic books. All of this was part of Jewish oral history. They had all of these things that that could say, they just knew it. it I don't want to insult you, okay? But they didn't need things written in front of them that they could go back and reference. You know why? Because around dinner tables and in the temple and in the synagogue and even the tabernacle for for those in the Exodus years and years and years back, they talked about this stuff. Kids just knew it. You didn't have to beg them or bribe them to read their Bibles. They didn't have Bibles. They sat under the teachings of of, uh, the, um, the Levite priests and even their families in their homes. And they listened to stories about a faithful God that loves a rebellious people. Most of the recently, you know, we call the Messianic Jews in Acts chapter 2, they knew the Old Testament. All that put together was called the Tanakh. And they knew it intimately. But now this goes back to what we were talking about Scripture a couple weeks ago. The Holy Spirit 
takes what they knew, the things that they read, the things that they heard, and it illuminates the rhema, right? We talked about the graphe, the words on the page, the logos. We talked about Jesus being the fulfillment. And we talked about the rhema when the Holy Spirit illuminates the words on the page and tugs at your heart. The Holy Spirit is in these new believers who had only heard that Messiah was coming and they were waiting patiently on Messiah uh, to, to show up. And, and Peter gets up and he preaches this sermon and, and they go, oh man, Messiah's already come, we missed them. The Holy Spirit illuminated all the things that they heard. And through the teaching of the apostles, they will see now how Jesus is in every book of the, of the Old Testament. Can I show you how? fcbc.life, you can go, I'm going to go fast because we ain't got time to spend on a lot of this. But I want to show you in every book of the Old Testament where Jesus is. In Genesis, Jesus is the seed of the woman. In Exodus, Jesus is the Passover lamb. In Leviticus, Jesus is our high priest. In Numbers, Jesus is the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. In Deuteronomy, he's a prophet like unto Moses. In Joshua, he's the commander of the Lord's army. In Judges, he is the ultimate judge and the lawgiver. In Ruth, he is just as Boaz was. He is our kinsman redeemer. In First and Second Samuel, he is the seed of David. In Kings and Chronicles, he is our reigning king. In Ezra, he is our faithful scribe. In Nehemiah, he is the rebuilder of that which is broken. In Esther, he's Mordecai. He's our advocate. In Job, he is our ever-living redeemer. In Psalms, he is our shepherd. In Proverbs, he is our ultimate wisdom. In Ecclesiastes, he is our meaning for life. In Song of Solomon, he is our bridegroom. In Isaiah, he is the prince of peace. In Jeremiah and Lamentations, he is our weeping prophet. In Ezekiel, he is the glorious Lord. In Daniel, he is the fourth man in the fiery furnace. In Hosea, He is a faithful husband loving and pursuing a rebellious spouse. In Joel, he is the outpour of the Holy Spirit. In Amos, he is our burden bearer. In Obadiah, he is our judge and he's our savior. In Jonah, he is the risen prophet. In Micah, he is the ruler of the world from Bethlehem. In Nahum, he is our stronghold. In Habakkuk, he is our watchman. In Zephaniah, he is our mighty to save. In Haggai, he is the restorer. In Zechariah, he is the branch of David, the one that was pierced for us. And in Malachi, he is the son of righteousness. Jesus is in the Old Testament. Praise God. And from creation, church, from creation, Jesus has always been the answer to the age-old question, how can an unworthy man approach a holy God? Jesus would tell his disciples before his, his betrayal, he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. The words that were on each page of the Old Testament, on the the scriptures, they were on the writings, would come alive in this moment at Pentecost to this New Testament people as the apostles taught. And church lives continued to be changed. When we come and gather corporately and we sit under the teaching of the pastors of this church and we read the scriptures together, the words jump off the page and grip our soul. There must be something that continues to bring us together. The end of verse 47 says that the Lord continued to add to their number. That's going to be a recurring theme throughout this sermon. We're not a social club. 
We're not a part of Oprah's book club. We're not a CrossFit box. We, we, are not, we don't just have all these other hobbies that tie us together. I love to fly airplanes. I think most of y'all probably don't. Right? So we're not tied from that. Some of y'all like to hunt and fish. Some of y'all don't. I personally do. Our bond is not based on what we do. Our bond is based on who redeemed us, and that is the person of Jesus Christ. Abundant life, eternal life, and the gospel are the ties that bind us. Ken Adams, pastor of Crossroads Church in Newton, Georgia, once said that Jesus started the church the way he wanted it, and now he wants the church the way he started it. When we gather around Jesus, we are gathering around the gospel. We gather to be taught. We gather to be prepared. We gather to be trained like an army. Yes, if you are lost in your sin and you've never trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior, I want to extend an invitation to you to trust him today. It's the greatest decision you'll ever make. But the purpose of the local church, yes, is to invite those to be saved. But my expectation is, is when the church corporately gathers, you cannot be a part of the local church unless you are part of Jesus first. So when you gather, church, and you sit under the teaching of the pastors in the inspired and errant word of God, you are being trained like an army to be sent out into the world to fight Satan. When we scatter, our war is not against the flesh and blood of this world. It's against Satan and his minions. We gather to be taught how Christ is the answer to all of the ills of the world. That Jesus is better. That's the entire book of Hebrews. Jesus is better. Better than what? Yeah. Everything. Our differences, they can't separate us. Our backgrounds don't disqualify us. Jesus is for all who would believe. We gather to learn. So the local church is about absorbing God's word, but it should also consist of those living lives of sacrifice. Coming to church is not not just about Checking some spiritual box, right? It's not like this part of our psyche that we can just compartmentalize when we leave, right? I think so often we we do that. You know, we live any way we want to six days of the week, but when we come here, we put on our best, we walk in, and how are you doing today, brother? I'm blessed. If I were any better, I have to be twins. I don't understand that. I've had people in church tell me that for years. I don't know what that means. Why would being better make you a twin? I don't know. But we do that, don't we? It's a facade that we put up. Everything's just fine. We compartmentalize and we leave. That is not what the Christian life is about. The Christian life is is coming in. And you want to freak somebody out in church? When they ask ask you how you're doing, tell them. (laughs) You want to see a deer in the headlights look? They ain't expecting whatever answer you're going to give them. They ain't expecting it. Verse 42, they devoted themselves. It wasn't just a flippant obligation. They were devoted to the cause, to Christ. It says they had fellowship, right? The teaching, apostles' teaching and the fellowship. That word fellowship is the Greek word koinonia. Literally means communion or participation, right? When we have communion, we are participating with Christ, when we, have, when we have fellowship together, we are having communion with each other. Now, you look at verses 45 and 46. 
This is where living lives of sacrifice comes in. It says they were selling their possessions and their belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. You know, think about it. You've worked 20, 25 years, 30 years maybe. Maybe you just retired. Congratulations, by the way. And, and you finally bought the house that you want. Kids are gone. Like, like, life is good. You've got a membership to Hidden Hills. You're playing golf. You're playing tennis. You're living the dream. You're traveling a little bit. And then God comes to you and says, I want you to sell everything you own, and I want you to move to Africa. And you're going to share the gospel. I can tell you of a couple that just did that. They're not any more holy than you are. What, make, what separates them is when God came to them and said, I want you to sell everything and go. They sold everything and went. Part of living the Christian life is if God asks for your yes to be put on the table, you give it. No holds barred. No time to think about it. I don't know, Lord, let me pray about it. Let me tell you, if the Lord of glory gives you a command, church, your best response is, yes, Lord, here, I, here am I, send me. They sold anything and everything that they had. And they distributed the proceeds to all as any had need. I truly believe this, church. I truly believe that there would be no need for social programs in this country if the church was doing what the church was supposed to do. And that means we put our yes on the table. It means if God calls us to it, that we do it. Look at what they're doing here. Over the last two weeks, we've seen how reading our Bibles and praying to the Lord as well as fasting is a, ma is a manner of communication with God. They took, the first church took those ties that bound them and that translated. It didn't just stay as words on a page. It translated into a certain communion, not only with God, but with one another. And the more they fell in love with Jesus, the more they found love and affection for one another. It allowed them to bear each other's burdens, to show grace to one another, and to lift one another up. But that communion, church, comes at a cost. Flip over to Mark chapter 10. Jesus is going to have an encounter with a guy, they call him the rich young ruler. We don't know a whole lot about him. We just know that, that if he was a ruler, that he was probably affluent, he was wealthy. Starting in, in verse 17 of Mark chapter 10, it said, Now as Jesus was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, teacher, all these things I've kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him. I love that. He loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Verse 22 says that he was disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. This is not an attempt to get to your stuff, okay? That's not what I want. I have my own stuff. I don't need yours, okay? Quite honestly, Jesus doesn't need yours. He has cattle on a thousand hills. He doesn't need your stuff. He wants, he wants your yes. He wants your heart. Part of a life that has been changed by the gospel is a life that is willing to say, God, if that's what you've called me to, I'll do it. 
And it said that he kept all these things. I think Jesus, I don't think Jesus was toying with them. I think Jesus was trying to get this young man to admit the one thing he hadn't done. And that was to let go of the things of the created world and to chase after the creator. He wanted to follow Jesus, but when Jesus told him the price, and it wasn't the selling of his possessions, it was the following him part. He found it was too rich for his blood, and he left sad. Now, back to Acts chapter 2. These people, when it came time to put their yes on the table, they didn't hesitate. Why? It can only be one reason, and that is because they have experienced true life change. Church, an experience with God that doesn't lead to life change is no true experience with God. You cannot have an encounter with Jesus and not leave changed. It causes us to stop looking inwardly at how can my flesh be satisfied. It causes us to look outwardly and see where is the hurting, where is the broken, where is the least of these. I want to go to them. No longer was it about the way the temple was decorated or the way they handled the services, or the kind of music that they sang. It was about what can I do to take the gospel to those that have never heard. The church must consist of living lives of sacrifice, but it also consists of of growing in biblical community. Now, mind you, biblical community isn't the same as community. We can have community. We discussed that a little bit, right? We all have different hobbies. We all have different desires. We all have different wants. We all have different fashion sense. We all have different taste in music. I was over at uh, some friend's house last night, and their uh, 10-year-old daughter was uh, was listening to Christian rap. And I'm like, I I don't know that I really dive that far into it. I like Lecrae, but I mean, you know, I don't know. That's like she was listening to to, um, uh, Andy Andy Minio and, and 116, and I was like, I don't know that that's my thing. But she's still a believer, and she's still my sister. We all have different tastes. But for the church to have true biblical community, hear me for what I'm saying. Church attendance must be part of it. You have to be part of biblical community. Contextually, verse 42, uh, we see the breaking of bread here. Uh, In verse 42, um, is is going to talk about the breaking of bread and the prayers as a part of the apostles teaching the breaking of bread and the prayers. All right, they're talking in verse 42 about the Lord's Supper. Verse 46 is different. Look at verse 46. It said, And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their home, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. Think of it like this. Depending on where you're from, okay, um, in, in northeast Florida, when I ask you for a Coke, can I have a Coke? Most people are going to ask you, what kind of Coke do you want? Do you want Coke? Do you want Diet Coke? Do you want Sprite? Do you want Dr. Pepper? In some places, you can go like up north, and they'll say, would you like a soda? Okay? You go a little bit further west, and do you want a pop? Okay? Becky, what do you all say in Michigan? Pop, right? I almost forgot why I asked you that. When they talk about, oh, I, I remember now, okay. When, 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 <laughs> silly illustrations that come up in the middle of a sermon. I got to remember that for next, next sermon. Um, it says when they were breaking bread in their homes, they weren't always just breaking bread. They were just eating meals, 
They were having dinner together. They were talking about being in small groups together. And church, I love what Matt said earlier. It's easy for you to come into a room this size with this many people and disappear. We don't mean for that to happen. There's a lot of people in this room. It would be easy if you wanted to to slip in, sit in the back, or maybe just like slide into a row that's got people on it. And when the service, when the service is over, while, while I'm praying or while people are starting to file out, you just sort of make your way to the exit. It's easy for you to come in and slip through the cracks. Corporate worship happens in this room, but life happens in small groups. Allie and I have talked about for years as, as being a pastor of a church. One church that I pastored, there was not one person that joined the church in five years as pastor that didn't join without coming through our, our dining room table and having dinner with us. Just inviting people over, hearing their story, getting to know them. I hear all the time from y'all, and you're excited. I love that. I hear about how excited you are for the church to have a pastor and to grow again. Notice what it doesn't say here about their church growth. Yes, the apostles preached the gospel. People heard the gospel and were gloriously saved. But it says that they broke bread in their homes. They got together in small groups. You can't just meet on Sundays, church, and expect your church to grow. Programming doesn't grow churches. Programs are a mean to an end. It brings people in, it shows people the gospel, and it shows people community. But when programming is an end in itself, like you do a good, a cool program, like whether it's like a jingle jam or VBS or, you know, whatever it happens to be, and like you pat yourself on the back, man, we just did a great job. Let's on to the next one. When the programming is an end in itself without a desire to grow deeply with the Christians around you, the church won't grow. You must be, you have to be devoted. So here's my call to you. Open your dining rooms. Open your living rooms. Open your lives. You work with someone who's looking for a church home? I think it's great. Invite someone to church. Invite them to dinner first. Let them get to know you. Invite them, if you have an off-campus life group, invite them to an off-campus life group. Invite them to a living room first. Then when they're there and they meet a few people, and like Matt said, like, like we're, we're not weird. When they see we're not weird, say, come on to church. Will you come sit with me in church? It's a really cool time. Music's stellar. Preaching's average, but that's Okay. When we talk here about having an invite culture, we're not inviting people to a church. We're inviting people to Jesus. These Christians loved each other enough to want to spend time together outside the designated times that were worship times as delineated by the apostles. Francis Schaeffer once said that our relationship with each other is the criterion the world uses to judge, or to judge whether our message is truthful. This is awesome. Christian community is the final apologetic. If you're preaching the gospel that invites people in and you don't like the people you're around, it just looks fake. Look at verse 47. And the Lord added to their number day by day. 
But finally, we see that the church must consist of worshiping God together. Verse 47, praising God and having favor with all the people. It's interesting that, you, that Luke uses the correlation of praising God and having favor with all the people. Can, can I just kind of bear my soul to you a little bit this morning? There are people in the local church I don't like. I know. It's an awkward laugh. I understand. There are people, and not, not here, okay? There, <laughs> there are people in the local church. You're going to feel real bad for, for laughing here in just a second. There are people in the local church that have hurt me. There's people that have turned their backs on me and on my family, on my wife. There's people that have spoken untruths about me, about us. Does that mean that I, have, that I have the right to abandon the local church? No. The problem with the gospel, and I say problem loosely, is that God doesn't call me to love a perfect people. He calls me to love an imperfect person just as I'm imperfect. Does that mean that I forget the hurt? That I just repress it? And just say, you know what, Jesus is enough, so magically I just let go of these burdens. No, that's not what we do. That, the hurt happened. And quite honestly, that's the way it goes sometimes. One thing that I learned pastoring churches is the crazy out there tends to find its way to become the crazy in here. The crazy stuff people are peddling out there often comes walking through the front doors of the church every Sunday because people out there are part of the local church. And because of the crazy people are walking away from their church. And in their minds, they're not walking away from Jesus. They love Jesus. They're devoted to Jesus. And they may even watch church services online or listen to Christian podcasts. But there are people who are just flat saying they are done with the local church. If that's you today, if you're sitting in here and you're giving the church one last shot and you are so tempted to get up and walk away, or if you're watching us online and you are just tempted to turn the, the computer off, I, I beg you, just give me a couple minutes. I'm almost done. I need to share a hard truth with you and I need you to hear it today. The problem with the mentality that I can walk away from the local church and not walk away from Jesus is the fact that Jesus never walk, walked away from the local church. He knew about the crazy. He knew about the people that would say mean things and would hurt us. He knew the people that, that there, there were people in the local church that would use the church for their personal gain. And church, can I tell you, he loves them anyway. Not because of their sin, but in spite of it. This time last year, I wasn't even sure I wanted to pastor a local church again. The hurt was raw. But good people in this room and other churches just like this one reminded me that Jesus is greater than the hurt the local church has caused. And it was through it was through your ministry. It was through your ministry to us that we were reminded that our calling was to minister to the local church, crazy and all. People are going to hurt you. They'll hurt you inside the local church, and I, and I, I hate it, I do. 
The local church isn't immune to that hurt. So how do we deal with it? We're almost done. Luke gives us the answer. He tells us to worship God. And you may be asking, Pastor, how could that possibly be the answer? I once heard someone say one time, it's hard to hate someone when you're busy serving them. In John chapter 21, in verse 15, Jesus had found Peter. The resurrected Christ had found Peter. And, Peter, and Jesus cooked Peter breakfast. And this was part of the restoration process from Peter denying Jesus before his crucifixion. Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said, tend my sheep. Luke shows us a correlation. When we're faithful to worship God, our hands become, intrinsically become busy serving. Peter was going to preach the sermon at Pentecost. He learned from his mistakes and Jesus restored him. The scriptures tell us that Jesus came not to be served, but to serve. When we serve one another, we have greater unity. Verse 47 says they, had, they praised God, they worshiped God, and had favor with all the people. When your next pastor gets here, you want him to see a church that is devoted. Devoted to teaching, devoted to unity, devoted to service, devoted to missions, devoted to evangelism. Devoted to the local church here. Jesus loved the church so much that he chose to die our death to resurrect our lives. We should be just as devoted to Jesus as he is to us. If you've never trusted Jesus as Savior, I want to offer you and invite you into a life that you never knew possible. The Bible said you're dead in your sins and you're dead in your trespasses. And the church doesn't save you. Walking into the church, watching it online, that doesn't save you. What saves you is being radically changed by the gospel of Jesus. For you to say, God, forgive me of all the dumb stuff that I've done and forgive me and restore me to new life. And the Bible says that if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of all of our sins and cleanse us of all of our unrighteousness. And I'm going to pray a prayer in just a moment. It's going to close our service out. But if you want to know more about what that life looks like, Pastor Matt's going to be standing in the back and I'm going to be standing down front. I'd love to have that conversation with you today. Let's pray as we close out. Father, we love you and we honor you. And we, we thank you for being devoted to us. Father, we know that it is incumbent upon us being, to be devoted to you. So Father, may we not live lives of ordinary. May we live lives of abundance, of supernatural abundance. May we practice our gifting here, the gifting that you've given us here that the church might be expanded. Your kingdom would grow. Your name would be made famous. And Father, if someone is in this room or watching online has never trusted you as Savior, Father, may today be the day of salvation. For we pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.
May God bless you as you go.